So there's nothing like being out of your comfort zone to make you appreciate what you have. So um, I flew out to uh, Senegal uh, maybe 10 days ago or something, or two weeks ago. And um, it was the day after there was a... Um, attack on a Radisson Blue Hotel in Bamako, Mali. Uh, it was the day before I was flying to stay in the Radisson Blue Dakar, which is the next country over. Not so close, but close enough, you know. And uh, I'd never been to Africa, and so was a little uh, concerned, <laughs> to say the least. I called my contact in the UN there in Dakar. Oh, it's fine. It's no problem. Senegal's really safe. So, um, so we go to Senegal and, and of course there's a lot more security as there always is after a, a terrorist attack, however near or far it is. And, um, uh, you know, it's interesting to uh, think about you know, it was interesting, one, being there at Thanksgiving, a million miles away from from here, and uh, and just reflecting on what I give thanks for. And often the things that I try to recall to give thanks for are the things that I don't notice ordinarily. Right? So there's a lot of things that we can be grateful for in the lives that we live here that are, for the, for the most part, are very uh, fortunate and privileged um, compared to how most of the world lives, and uh, one of the things that I was appreciating was safety, you know, relative safety, because there's never true ultimate safety from birth, age, sickness, and death, but relative safety, where um, uh, for many people that's not the case, and certainly for many of the people that I was working with there who work in the Sahel and a lot of West Africa and Central Southern Africa, a lot of unsafety on many different levels. And um, so it turned my mind to a little about what I wanted to talk about. And partly what I was going to talk about was um, uh, gratitude, having you know just come off for a Thanksgiving week. Um, and what arises out of gratitude, what, what reflection about the fortune of our circumstances, what that motivates us to do. What do we do with that good fortune? What do we do with the, the blessed circumstances of our life? Do we take them for granted? Do we reflect on them? Do they inspire us to do something? to share perhaps with those who are less fortunate than us. So, and I'm wondering, you know, coming from England, we don't have a Thanksgiving holiday. Um, and it's a beautiful holiday, and it particularly as a, I, I, as a, as a, as a foreigner, I don't have the some of the sometimes baggage that these holidays have or associations um, and so it's it feels like a really delightful uh, celebration of um, gratitude and appreciation uh, 
And I also wonder whether that's just an annual thing. You know, do we just feel grateful once a year? Do we give thanks once a year? Or does it, is it an ongoing reflection? Is it an ongoing um, attitude? You know, do we practice Thanksgiving the last Thursday of November and then practice scarcity on consciousness on Friday and go shopping? You know, or greed, you've got to get the best bargain and whatever. You know, how long does it last, that, that, that quality, that attitude? Yeah? How grateful do we feel this week for the circumstances of our lives? I'm not saying this as a place coming from a place of should, but just as a reflection. You know? I think you know, the Buddha didn't talk so much overtly about gratitude. I mean, it's certainly in the teaching, but it's, I think it's given the, the abundance and the affluence and the materialism and the obsession with all of that in our culture, I think gratitude is, an, is a more important practice because one, we have so much, and two, because it's an antidote to all the, the sense of scarcity and not enoughness and um, emptiness or um, sense of longing that we want more. Yeah? When, when we cultivate that that um, heart of gratitude, of appreciation, and we remember how much we have. It's, it, it, it can't help but uh, cultivate a beautiful mind, a beautiful heart. You know, one of my favorite practices as a journaling practice is, is uh, a never-ending gratitude journal. And I, 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 now I don't use a journal, I just reflect at night before I go to bed, things I'm grateful for. And they can be quite random things like um, tarmac, you know, having spent some time driving on very bad roads in Senegal, it's like tarmac is a really good thing, smooth, flat, you know, roads, or clean water, you know, driving out in these villages where, you know, there's just a well, you know. And do we appreciate the, the, the water that comes out of our faucet every time I'm in a country where that is not uh, an, uh, a, a right or a privilege? It's, it's, it's a good fortune to have the access to that. Mm. So, so I, 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 encourage, I, I encourage this reflection of um, thinking about you know the things that we take for granted so often. You know, trust in our food that's not going to make us sick. Right? It's not necessarily a guarantee in many parts of the world. A hot shower I heard over there can be a nice thing. So I also like to, to uh, reflect on gratitude for things that are politically incorrect, like gratitude for oil companies. Not a very popular thing to say in Marin. But try going hiking without using something that isn't an oil derivative product. 
and you'd get very wet. Well, the pharmaceutical industry. So I was um, uh, was leading a three-day training for the staff. uh, For the UN has a division called the World Food Project, which takes delivers food and uh, food development uh, to about a hundred million people around the world. Incredibly, inconceivably large operation. Uh, about a hundred thousand staff, and um, so I was doing some some mindfulness and emotional intelligence training for some regional and staff in West Africa, and mostly in Senegal, fo- folks from Senegal. I can feel my jet lag kicking in because my brain just lost that thought. <laughs> <laughs> I was going somewhere with that, but oh well. Um, Pharmaceuticals, thank you. God, I'm glad someone has a brain around here. (laughs) And and I got wretched food poisoning like the morning I was about to start teaching. You know, of course, you know. And um, and, I was not doing very well and um, losing a lot of fluids and... Um, and I uh, uh, took some medicine, which really helped. And I have to say, I was very thankful for the pharmaceutical companies who figured out how to deal with those symptoms of food poisoning. So, you know, to think about what you're grateful for. This is from Lao Tzu. It says, He who knows that enough is enough will always have enough. She that knows that enough is enough will always have enough. When do we know enough is enough? Enough money, enough resources, enough whatever it is that we're into. We're all into some kind of stuff, some kind of something, some kind of longing for security and comfort and all of that. When will we know enough is enough? When we know that enough is enough that we have plenty. This is from Robert Quillen. He says, if you count all your assets, you will always show a profit. If you count all of your assets, right? To think about, well, what are your assets, right? Not just what's in your bank or in your, whatever it is, wherever it is you put your money, yeah? But our true assets, our true nature, our true worth, Right, both in our nature, but also in what we're given to. You know, we 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 give we're given so much every day from so much life, from the fire of the sun to the the nurturance of the earth to the life-giving oxygen from released from the trees to you know, our bank balance is rather huge. You know. So I know Nina was here last week and uh, was talking about gratitude. So I don't I don't want to labor the point, but I I just I think it's useful to recall it and also to but to ask this question: What does it inspire in you? 
What does it motivate you to do? This blessing, this bounty, this goodness, this privilege that we have to be living here in this place at this time. And one of the things I was reflecting is the relationship between that, between gratefulness and, and appreciation and the, the motivation or the uh, impulse to, uh, to serve in some way, to return the favor, you could say, to, um, to do something with our time, with our skill, with our education, with our learning, with, our, with the fruits of our life. And one of the things that we can do is, you know, through the practice, through our life, through our, the way we choose to live, and is to serve in some way, to give back. So, and I was very touched by the spirit of service, uh, working with the folks um, from, the, from the world, Food Project, WFP. And um, I felt very privileged to be there, to be sharing some of these practices to people who I regard as, as bodhisattvas, as people who dedicate their lives, really dedicate their lives to the welfare and the relief of suffering, in this case, to hunger that's caused mostly through uh, you know, um, political, uh, geopolitical, fallout from civil strife, from terrorism, from famine, from climate change. And um, you know, many, many of the people I was working with had been working for the UN for 10, 20 plus years and had really given their lives over to this work and they, they, uh, the, way, the way this organization is set up is they they move people every two to three years in different, in different countries so they don't burn out in the most difficult places. Um, so one chap I was working with, he was moved from Afghanistan, then he, then he was moved to Pakistan because it was considered a little easier, and then went to South Sudan, um, and then his current posting was in... Um, uh, I forget exactly, I think Niger, which is you know, greatly suffering from the effects of Boko Haram. And um, just incredible dedication to this work and to uh, utilizing resources that come from the UN uh, to deliver uh, food and... and, and uh, um, and other resources to people in these really desperate conditions in refugee camps and, and displaced all over the world, and including Syria and Central Africa and whatnot. So, you know, I think about bodhisattvas in the Buddhist tradition. So, bodhisattva is considered this, you know, it's a very beautiful ideal and archetype. This is a bodhisattva here, this is Kuan Yin. Anakuan Yin Chenrezi's Avalokiteshvara, the the archetypal expression of compassion in Tibetan Buddhism, has a thousand arms and thirteen heads, and 
you know, dedicated to relieving suffering. All these, every hand has some 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 implement that relieves suffering. So it's, it's symbolized. Um, but there are many many living bodhisattvas here, close to home and far away. Um, and it's always a pleasure to be in the in the company of people who really um, give up, in a way, a lot of um, their own safety, their own comfort, their own family sometimes, uh, sometimes their own welfare, uh, for, for a cause, for, for a profound you know, value of, of caring deeply for humanity and to finding ways to, to reduce suffering, in this case, to famine and hunger. So, and it was just interesting to reflect for myself, well, how much do I live up to that ideal? You know, I feel like my life is pretty comfortable in many ways and without most of the hardships that these people have. You know, I do my own work and my own service, teaching and whatnot. And um, I also saw how high the bar can be, you know, in a life of service, in a life of dedicating your life or at least a significant portion of your life to helping others. Yeah? So I'm curious, how many people here in this room have a livelihood that's directly oriented towards helping others? Just raise your hand, just I'm curious. I imagine there's quite a lot of people in the room. And I imagine if I, there's probably a lot of you who didn't raise your hand, but are, but are involved indirectly in, in some ways or other with helping others. You know, and that can be through your work, but it also can be through the way you parent. It can be the way you take care of your sick people or elders in your family. It can be many, many ways to serve and to help, obviously, and volunteer. And um, I'm not on a recruitment drive for the World Food Program. <laughs> this is from George Bernard Shaw who says, this is the true joy in life. The being used for a purpose recognized by yourself as a mighty one. The being a force of nature instead of a feverish, selfish little clod of ailments and grievances, (laughs) complaining that the world will not devote itself to making you happy. (laughs) I am of the opinion that my life belongs to the whole community And as long as I live, it is my privilege to do for it whatever I can. I want to be thoroughly used up when I die, for the harder I work, the more I live. I rejoice in life for its own sake. Life is no brief candle to me. It is a sort of splendid torch, which I have got hold of for the moment, and I want to make it burn as brightly as possible before handing it on to future generations." I am of the opinion that my life belongs to the community and I do whatever I can in service of that beautiful, beautiful ideal, beautiful aspiration. You know, we had life as a brief candle that we hold on. It's temporarily borrow, you know, borrowed lent to us you know, that we hold. Uh, and then what do we make of that light? What do we do with this one 
precious opportunity called life. How do we, how do we nurture that light? How do we pass it on? How do we make most of our time? You know, again, and not wanting to make this sound like a, a lot of shoulds and a lot of well, you should be doing more, or something different or better, or just to to reflect. You know, to reflect on on what we have and what we have to offer, which is much, which is many. You know, we have, all have many gifts and talents, and whether it's just a simple giving of our presence. You know, was love, one of the lovely things that came out of this training. So we we did a lot of focus on mindful listening because one of the things that happens in bureaucracies is, is, is no matter how well-intentioned they are, um, especially a big organization like that, is people you know get busy and they stop listening to each other. They stop really taking the time because there's such urgency, there's such a sense of crisis mode. Like one of the questions was, how do we stop living in crisis mode even when there's not a crisis? Right? And that's often how we live our lives, right? the sense of urgency, the sense of got to get done, got to get through this thing, this is a to-do list, and there's so much to do. And, and so um, several of the directors said, oh, I'm going to, you know, when I get back to my office, I'm going to have a, you know, regular office hours each week where I, my door is open and I'm just simply there to listen. I'm just simply there to take the time to listen to my staff and my team and my colleagues and my workers and just, and just to be present to hear what it is they have to say. Because, of course, all the people are working for them are even more in the front line in the field. And so that was one very simple way that they were choosing to you know, take this practice, you know, their practice of presence, of mindful listening, just being here for somebody. And then to think about, you know, what are the ways that we hold back? You know, we often have noble aspirations. I know um, when I first learned about generosity and generosity practice, um, one of the things I was told, and, I, and it's true, or I was encouraged, is to follow the first impulse, right? the first impulse to give. Right? And we often have many, many desires to give, to share, to offer our help and money or resources or whatever. And then the second thought is, oh, I don't know, I might need that jumper that I haven't worn for 10 years sweater, should I say, I might need that sweater, or I don't know if I can afford to give that much, or you know, I'm busy, I don't know if I can extend myself the time to somebody. And you know, So we hold back, you know, out of fear, out of scarcity, out of habit, out of... Who knows what? This is, uh, I forget the, the author of this who wrote, Give up on yourself. Begin taking action now. While being neurotic or imperfect or a procrastinator or unhealthy or lazy or any other label in which you inaccurately describe yourself, go ahead and be the best imperfect person you can be and get started on those things you want to accomplish before you die. So to think about you know, the ways that we hold back, the ways that we procrastinate, deliberate, and um, cut off a certain life force, a certain movement of energy.
So I think about the Dalai Lama as a as a in house example of someone who dedicates their life to the relief of suffering. And um, I think about he has some really funny one liners, including not funny, haha, but they're sort of amusing. Um, one of which is, if you want others to feel happy, practice compassion. If you want to feel happy, practice compassion. Right? What's interesting about service and generosity and kindness and compassion is we're hardwired to orient that way. We're social creatures, and we're hard, we, one of the reasons why we, we're evol- we can know we're evolutionary designed to orient in that way is we feel good, we feel happy when we do that. Right? It's part of a way of sustaining the species. When you when you hardwire a species to to um, feel good when it's kind and caring and giving and compassionate, that will be a, a somewhat of an inclination or an orientation. And I think this is one of the the interesting. Uh, I'm not sure if it's a paradox, but it's a, or an irony or something that um, that the very thing that we often resist doing because of time or energy or scarcity is something which is to give, to share, to be kind, to be generous. We hold back and therefore we also cut off our own access to well-being and connection and community and happiness. Because it feels good. I mean, I I could see from the people in the field that were doing this incredibly hard work in in Senegal and in West Africa, is they also were like, there was a light in them, there was a fire, there was a passion but there was also a joy even amidst the hard work. It wasn't a smiley, happy-go-lucky joy, but it was a deep satisfaction and, and a sense of meaning and purpose and fulfillment. So this is maybe a way that um, what I'm trying to say, this is also from His Holiness, who says, Every day think as you wake up, Today I am fortunate to have woken up. I am alive. I have a precious human life. I am not going to waste it. I'm going to use my energies to develop myself, to expand my heart to others, to awaken for the welfare of all. I'm going to have kind thoughts towards others. I'm going to benefit others as much as I can. So it's an interesting aspiration to think as we wake up to remember, you know, to remember gratitude, to remember appreciation, to remember thanks, to think about what noble aspiration can arise out of that. You know, sometimes it could be, well, you know, I wake up and I feel good and good for me. <laughs> I'm doing all right. <laughs> I'm going to go take a hot tub and then, you know, who knows what. You know, which is okay. I like hot tubs, um, but uh, you know, can we? What 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 does it take to to orient to tilt that orientation towards otherness, towards kindness, towards service, towards some extending out of ourselves? You know? So I want to read this quote. This is from Adi Ashanti, who's a wonderful teacher. 
and um, he he reframed for me this idea of um, the bodhisattva vow. So one of the the aspirations that comes out of bodhicitta, this aspiration to relieve the suffering of others, um, is a vow in the Mahayana tradition, the, which is a vow to relieve the suffering of all beings, which is of course completely impossible, um, but one tries anyway. And uh, he, um, he was speaking to this and he says, saving all beings is not something that you do. Saving all beings is a verb that you become, you become the saving of all beings. That is what you are. And that there is quite naturally this very spontaneous and effortless manifestation of love and compassion and a dedication to the truth above all else. Saving all beings is not what you do, it is a definition of who you are. I thought that was a beautiful uh, reframing of uh, this aspiration to, to, to help from something that sounds completely inconceivably large to something that's actually the nature or the fabric of our being or our orientation to life. So um, I've shared this this cartoon before. There's a, a cartoon from Gary Larson, uh, regarded as a great Dharma teacher from the far side. Dharma teachings are kind of from the far side too. So, and there's a picture of uh, hell. We're in hell, and Satan's there coming out of his fiery den, and he's shouting to his mother. He's saying, "Mother, no!" Don't do that. And the caption at the bottom is uh, says, despite his repeated efforts to uh, restrain her, Satan could never stop his mother from offering cookies and milk to the accursed. <laughs> and so outside the fiery den of hell, you've got the new recruits coming in, all sitting in a row looking very unhappy. And uh, Satan's mom is there with a tray of cookies and milk in a little pinny with you know, the, the devil on it and the horns and the tail. And, um, you know, there's, there's, there's this irrepressible urge, right, to help, to care. We can't help ourselves, right? It's, it's our nature. Fortunately, our nature is to be kind. Our nature is compassionate right? when it's not abused or hurt or distorted through our conditioning, which, of course, it often is. So we might not be offering cookies and milk to the accursed, but to reflect on the ways that we help or can orient to others with our time, with our attention, with our parenting, with our love, with our patience, with our generosity. So I wanted to share a story. Um, This is from a young Tibetan Lama. And 
what I like about this story is it sort of cuts through the, you know, the romanticizing of well, one being a Tibetan Lama and two, um, you know, the, the complexity of helping, the complexity of serving. Uh, you know, for those of you in the helping professions and the caring professions, you know. Sometimes it's a thankless task. Sometimes you get blamed. Sometimes people are mad with you when you actually try to do the most helpful thing. You know, sometimes as a Dharma teacher, the most helpful thing can be saying the very thing that someone doesn't want to hear. You know, and they hate you for it for a while. You know, it's part of the job. So this is a, this is a, um, a magazine clipping from um, Harper's Magazine. And it's an interview with uh, Pema Jones, who's a young Tibetan Rinpoche Lama, um, who was Western, but was then uh, recognized as a reincarnate Lama teacher, and so was taken to uh, India to study in a Tibetan monastery for a long time as, as a young child. And then moved back to his family with his family in Montana uh, in his teens. And so Chris Helm, who who's works for um, uh, this magazine, is interviewing him. And uh, Chris asks, It must be hard enough to be a 13 year old boy in America, not to mention also being a Tibetan Lama. How do your friends and family treat your connection with the Dharma? Dharma is the Buddhist teachings. And Pema Jones says, It's kind of weird. I have two older brothers, and they tease me about it. They call me Shrimpoche, <laughs> as opposed to Rinpoche. The kids at school never don't know I'm a Lama. I would never tell them I'm a Lama. Why not, says Chris. I get dissed enough as it is just being Asian. They call me names like Nip and Gook. It's not like when I was growing up in India. Everyone here in Wyoming is white. I consider it a good day when some goof in a pickup truck doesn't try to run me over. How do you deal with people trying to hurt you? Chris asked. Well, it's pretty safe around here, but we Asians need to stick together. Some of my f- best friends in our gang are Chinese. It's strange to have Chinese friends where my family has been treated so badly by the Chinese, but this is America. i got to live here with my own karma. Some skinner doesn't care whether I'm Tibetan or Chinese. He just wants to stomp on my head. You're in a gang? Well, it's just for protection. It's like if a guy threatens one of us, there's nothing we can do on our own, but by getting a bunch of us together, we can defend ourselves. We don't have guns, we don't do drugs or rob people. Can we talk about something else? Sure. Do you like your students? Yeah, they're all right. They're kind of funny. It's like they say they they come for the teachings, but when they get into the interview room, they talk about other stuff. Like what other stuff? Well, they mainly talk about the opposite sex. Men talk about problems with their wives, and women talk about their husbands and boyfriends. I don't get it. It's like I have enough, little enough time as it is with school and little league and my chores, and they want me to be a shrink or something. I'm only 13. I mean, I've got girlfriends and, and all, but I don't, I don't know about relationships. So what do you tell them? Oh, I talked to my dad about it, and he gave me a stack of business cards from one of his friends, a psych- 
psychologist. I just hand my students one of the cards when they start talking about relationships. I put my name on the back of the card, and whenever my dad's friend gets a new client, he takes me and my brother and my sister to Dairy Queen. It's cool. (laughs) Buddhism is no big deal. It's like being a doctor. There's suffering, you diagnose it, you give someone a prescription and hope they go to the drugstore. No one in America wants to go to the store, however. They all want to be pharmacists and sit around discussing different types of medicine. What's with that? Take some medicine, come back next week. I mean, don't get me wrong, Buddhism is about choice. So you're fully qualified to teach. Sure, I mostly teach Tonglen, giving and receiving, suffering. It's what I think works best at times when people are trying to kill you or too many chances are, too many changes are happening at once, which seems to be the case in this country. You're basically like this giant filter, like an air conditioner. You suck in the bad air and you breathe out the pure air. I see myself like an air conditioning repair dude. I teach people how to filter and cool things down. So if you can cool things down, why do you need to be in a gang? Well, it's a samsara nirvana thing. If some guy disses me, I can just tell myself that he doesn't really exist separate from me. You know, like it's like he's dissing himself. That works fine. But what happens when he starts, stops stalking and starts beating on me? You need to be able to take care of yourself so you don't get killed. We live in samsara and spacing out about nirvana does not help. Chris, don't you see any contradictions in that? I mean, like the Dalai Lama, for example, constantly teaches nonviolence despite having been terribly oppressed all his life. Pema Jones laughing. Oh, yeah, right. The Dalai Lama is an awesome old dude and a killer teacher, but he's got like a dozen bodyguards around him when he's traveling. <laughs> what do you think would happen if some butthead pulls a gun on his holiness? Do you think those dozen bo- bodyguards will practice nonviolence or bust some karate move on him? No way, man. A bodyguard sees this dweeb with a gun, he's going to pop a cap in his ass. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the life of a uh, you know, modern-day bodhisattva. Giant air-conditioning dude, repair dude. <clears throat> Not as easy as it sounds. So I could talk on and on, but I don't really want to say too much more. I think that's plenty. So I'm going to open up to questions, comments, observations. What, what do you have to say? What do you think about service? What are you, any reflections that come up from, from uh, this evening? What, what, what? What motivates you after a week of Thanksgiving? How does that orient towards you to helping others? Or just many, many things, anything you'd like to share? Questions, comments, observations? Anybody got their hand up? I can't see. No. Well, we could just play some music. Do you see a hand? I do. All right. I can't remember how you articulated it, but when you were talking about the difference between having kind of a mission or a goal versus living it, like a verb, and that really landed for me. And um, I felt like a a relief hmm. 
in that feeling because often the goal is not really attainable. Mm-hmm. But the being of it mm-hmm. is can happen and be, yeah. ha- be happening. Yeah. The breathing it, the living it, yeah. the singing it, the moving it. Yeah, we can create a lot of suffering with our goals and, and lofty aspirations. And you know they're fine to have. They're fine to you know put a stake in the ground and, and set your compass toward that. And what we have to do is we have to live it, you know. And we can that we can always access and orient towards. Right? And the goal and the goals are all never really up to us anyway. But that fundamental orientation of say service or helping or being responsive or caring or being open to generosity or whatever that is, that's doable. Yeah, we just take baby steps after baby steps. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, I think about uh, you know, that line from um Mother Teresa when she was asked at some point late in her late in her career in her service about how she, you know, you know, now she's you know, got this, you know, global organization that's dedicated towards relieving suffering and and the interviewer was saying, well, how did you, you know, how did that happen? What, you know, how did you build such a, you know, robust and, you know, significant organization? She said, well, I didn't have any plans, you know, it wasn't like that was my, you know, I started on the streets of Calcutta and, you know, I started picking up, you know, sick and dying people in the streets and taking them to a, to a simple building where they could, you know, convalesce and die with dignity and that's how it happened and that's you know that 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 orientation I trust was what guided her and stayed with her for those many many decades so so sometimes we have you know that aspiration or the goal sometimes we don't but if we can orient towards that attitude of you know really the question would be you know how can I serve how can I take of my life in this moment, not some grand idea of my life, but how in this moment, this waking up and feeding the kids, this moment, you know, orient to kindness to whoever strangers I meet in my day, to uh, going the extra mile for a friend or a stranger in the streets of San Francisco, or whatever it is. You know, it's just, I was with my friend yesterday at the jazz concert, a um, woman called Gloria Simino, some of you may know her. She's she used to run this beautiful arts project in uh, San Rafael um, um, for uh, at, at-risk children, and then she took it to Kenya, and she works with at-risk kids in Kenya, and then works with girls in Nepal who've um, you know suffered from sex trafficking, and then she works in Tanzania with other kids who've been trafficking, sex trafficked, and. Again, it's just I see that spirit in her. She's been doing that work for 25 years or something. It's just an orientation to what's what's next. How can I help? Where can this work be of service? And then my friend Jack here, who does beautiful work in the Insight Present Project for now what, 25 years or more, maybe I don't know how long. Long time. Um, you know, just day by day, patiently dedicating time, effort, life towards that orientation how can this how can i help how can the, the practice that i've learned help you know one of the reasons i run these teacher trainings is because i feel like there's such a need in this culture 
in this world for people who have who can who can share some of these practices kindness clarity mindfulness presence compassion right so i'm training a lot of people in different ways in different countries to to take these practices out because our, our country is you know and the world is is desperate for practices of wisdom of kindness compassion i was happy to hear that the there was a big report in, in the UK Parliament just released a report there and there was an all party working group. They they did a research on, on the the field of mindfulness and, and its relationship to uh, key elements in society and they were looking at the role of mindfulness in healthcare and education in the justice system and um, in uh, one other key area. I forget psychology. And um, you know, and they they came out with a very very compelling and robust uh, case for massively scaling mindfulness based practices in healthcare through MBCT mindfulness based cognitive therapy. They want five hundred and seventy five thousand people to have access to go through that program. They want to roll it out in schools um, and in, in 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 certain parts of the justice system. Um, seen to massively reduce recidivism in low to medium uh, uh, security prisons. Um, just these phenomenal uh, impacts um, in healthcare. They say that um, the, they spend $1 in mindfulness, it saves them $15 in, in healthcare costs because people, when they're Practicing mindfulness, they're more self-aware. They take better care of their bodies, and so are less subject to immune issues and health issues and whatnot. So, um, yeah, yes, someone here at the front. Oh. Is it at the front here, front, George. <laughs> Um, I think what came to mind was that um, what I've been really thinking of, I have a 16-year-old, and I was trying to think about, you know, giving back. And I know it seems like some kids really are just into it and want to do it. And then there's also that idea of being in Marin and being 16 and, you know, it's Friday night. We all need to go out. This is what's happening. And I thought, you know, there's this sense of wanting community so badly, of wanting to belong, of yeah. – and yet – uh, there's also something I know for my son that uh, as a parent, he would get so much from going out and giving and being of service because there's this innate loneliness mm-hmm. that, that he's feeling. You know, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I've talked to him where they, he wants to go out, though, and be part of this, you know, sure. but it's, it's always like an, the empty ghost, if you, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. So I'm, as a parent, going, gosh, it would be great to get him involved in if I could give him coping mechanisms that are really healthy this would be wonderful mm-hmm. and so it's like how do you it, it, if you have a kid that doesn't seem like i i don't know if I, 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 he's a good kid you know but it's like i want him to yeah oh if you went down to the soup kitchen i think you'd really find it to be really <laughs> but it's it's not happening so mm-hmm. anyway i don't know if you can talk a little bit on that yeah yeah well i think you know i mean there's um, I mean, one, it makes complete sense that at 16, you know, the most important thing is peer relationships. And so that makes 
total sense that that's the the compass bearing for his world. You know, it's true for I think for every kid. You know, teenage kids. You know, it's that's the orientation because that's that's the part of the you know the evolutionary hardwiring that that's that's in healthily developmentally to be doing that. Um, and you know, I think there's I think there's a timing and there's a place. And who knows if, when, how that may that seed may sprout, and it may just be the conditions. You know, whether he's at college or wherever he is, and you know, there's a, the maybe there's less social pressure and there's more capacity to follow his own heart, and maybe that will flower. And you know, and, and as you know, being a parent, it's you know, it's only so much you can do, and there's, there's a lot of letting go. And you know, and of course, I think it doesn't hurt to you know reflect on ways to set up the conditions where that might happen, you know, where that might be of, there might be a connection. And I also trust in people's development and their own and unfoldment. And, you know, 16 is generally not the time for most kids that that's what that's, you know, that's just not, you know, it, it's, a, it's just not what's happening. <laughs> you know, for some it is, but mostly not. And, um, you know, uh, yeah, I trust in the in the unfoldment of where he's going, and you know, and you know, of course, you can always be holding that space and possibility and funneling possibilities when when that's when he, when he's receptive, you know. Um, so, yeah, yeah, yes, over here, and there's over here, and there's over here. There's two hands at the back there. Hey, thank you. Um, I have a lot of gratitude for this space right here. Um, I've graduated college, but this was my sacred space all through high school and middle school, um, being part of the teen programs and then young adults and um, being here. And um, I wanted to speak about Thich Nhat Hanh and his climate action and um, how mindfulness for me is a lot about waking up to um, environmental destruction and social issues through mindfulness of our impact emotionally and socially towards each other. Um, I was just on a long permaculture tour with a bunch of young people doing social environmental work on the West Coast and um, waking up to this energy of just seeing um, how so many people don't even realize um, the genetically modified food and the toxic chemicals that are being put, like even in the soap, if you're anywhere you're going. And there's so many things that we're blind to that we don't see, um, even growing up in Marin, um, seeing how powerful it is to grow your own food and to be more self-reliant and to be working with environmental companies and thinking about the exploitation. There's so much that we're blind to in the West. I've also traveled to India and Central America. Um, so for me, this mindfulness practice is really about feeling in your body what our impact is every day. We're not thinking that most of the clothes we're wearing are you know, from sweatshops where people are being exploited and how can we live in eco-villages and live sustainably and live in community and shift our life and not be relying 
in these ways that are exploiting the environment. And so I think that um, Thich Nhat Hanh has this really powerful ecological movement, and same with the Dalai Lama, I've heard him speak. So um, that I just wanted to share that comment just for a dialogue, um, especially because you were just in the United Nations and what's going on right now. So mm-hmm. I wanted to spark that. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. And you know, we're in the first day of the the COP and the climate meetings in Paris today and um was listening to some of those speeches this morning. Um I mean, there's a lot to say. I've I've given several talks here recently about climate change and the climate crisis and and the, and the Dharma response to that. Um yeah, I do think in terms of service, since since the topic tonight is service, and of course, um, that is a beautiful uh, and really urgent uh, uh, way to be putting one's energy behind. Um, so, and of course, as you say, we um, most of us are asleep at the wheel most of the time, um, and. Um, yeah, and I think it's partly we get blinded through privilege, we get blinded through our comfort, we get blinded through our addiction to busyness and our addiction to distraction and it's this addiction to you know the, the mainstream media and all of that. Um, and so. Um, yeah, we we uh, the world needs an army of bodhisattvas to um, uh, to respond, you know. And I think there's a slow waking up. So there's certainly a very slow waking up in this culture, in this country, around climate and its impact. And <clears throat> um, and I couldn't think of a better thing to do with your time as a as a young person and as someone who's passionate about climate and climate justice to um putting all of your energy into that you know we would all cheer you on <laughs> um and we need you know a hundred million more of you you know to to uh carry on the 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 work you know and to and to continue Reminding all of us to wake up and to look at, um, you know, there's a there's a place of looking at our own individual actions, but I think where the real difference happens is, is is what's happening, you know, is uh, what's happening politically and economically, and uh, where we can leverage uh, our voices on the ground to those in power, because it's 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 the the kind of legislation that's that's happening in Paris and in DC and whatnot, and then the the institutions that have so much power, uh, that's where we're going to see a radical shift. But it, but they only shift when there's enough groundswell of opinion. Um, so it takes all of us to also wake up and, and become engaged and active, you know. And I think, um, you know, I was at I was at a conference. Uh, I was at the Nature Conservancy annual conference last month in D.C. and um, I watched this beautiful video. It was very moving. Uh, it was a legacy video um, about uh, a grandfather 
um, talking to his grandson about why he wasn't going to bequeath his money to him, that he was bequeathing it to environmental organizations so he would have, so his grandson would have a better chance of having a more sustainable planet to live in. It was a beautiful message and it was very touching and um, and it was a beautiful expression of service and he was taking his life's work, fruit, assets, whatever, and, and, and offering them to what he thought were organizations that were going to make a difference ecologically. So, um, you know, many ways to help, many ways to serve. So I'm afraid we're at time. Um, sorry, I'm not going to get to you, but we can chat afterwards, George. Um, so, uh, well, thank you for your time. Thank you for your attention and your practice. And I'll be back next week. I'm mostly hosting, uh, uh, we have a teacher here, Kilung Rinpoche, who's a beautiful Tibetan teacher. He has a, released a lovely text on meditation. And so um, we may have some dialogue. I'll mostly be offering the evening up to him to share some of his teaching and perspective. So, but I will see you next week and have a lovely week. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.